0: Good morning, Grid Connections listeners. And for those of you who may be listening for the first time, this is the Grid Connections podcast. This is the show where we unravel the complexities of electric transportation, renewable energy, and our electrical power grid that ties all of them together. I'm your host, Chase, and today we have a special guest joining us, Jason Goldfarb. He's a partner at the law firm Falcon, Rappaport and Berkman. I think I already know what you're wondering, because usually we're speaking with engineers or maybe people in the automotive or renewable energy industry. And well, Jason actually is. Uh, He has a very interesting, unique skill set coming from actually the real estate and the telecom industry. Believe it or not, this is actually all seriously needed in the electric vehicle charging infrastructure space. And today we speak with him about what he's doing to help people who are building new facilities and charging locations really maximize the potential. He shares his insights on the latest trends, challenges, and innovation shaping the future of grid connectivity, including from the integration of renewable energy sources to the electric vehicle charging landscape. We'll delve into the critical issues and what can be done to simplify and help guarantee much more consistent and longer lasting charging hubs. You can find more details on Jason and his law firm with links in today's show notes as well. But before we dive in, we have a special request for our listeners. If you find this episode or any Grid Connections podcast episode enlightening and thought-provoking, we encourage you to share it with at least one other person you believe would enjoy and benefit from our conversation. Together, let's spread the knowledge and foster a community of engaged listeners passionate about the energy revolution and clean transportation. So without further ado, this is the Grid Connections podcast with Jason Goldfarb. Enjoy. Enjoy.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Really appreciate it. Um, I'm happy to be on the podcast. So, I'll tell you a little bit about my, my background. So, for almost the last 25 years or so, I've been involved in the real estate infrastructure space. I got my start in the wireless telecommunications industry. And I've been doing that work, whether it relates to things like Uh, cell phone towers and rooftop installations for the cell phone business. I've worked for a couple of different companies that also invested in the infrastructure as well. So in addition to working in the wireless telecommunication space, I've also had experience with outdoor advertising, uh, solar, wind, other things like that. And in terms of getting into the EV charging space, our firm decided uh, not too long ago and with a a push from me, frankly, that uh, the EV infrastructure space might be a good practice area to, to try and get into. Um, I've, I've always been into cars since you know the day I came. I came out of the womb. You can tell by the poster I've got going in the background here. So I've always been really into that. I've always been into real estate as an attorney. I've always focused my practice on the transactional side of business And there are a ton of parallels to what you would call the regular infrastructure industry to what's going on right now in the EV infrastructure industry. And so making that switch was sort of natural. Uh, Still doing some work, you know, on the telecom side of things and with solar and with outdoor advertising. But the EV infrastructure space is really so much more interesting. And there are so many opportunities for, you know, for business, for improvement, for education, and so on and so forth. So, you know, we decided to, you know, to go in full speed ahead and, um, you know, to use the the non-electric uh, version of this, but basically we've been firing on all 12 cylinders, you know, going really headfirst into this.
0: Yeah, and I, I appreciate you kind of sharing that with everyone. I, I think what's really interesting is... Just for more context, we originally connected on LinkedIn. That's how I kind of came across you. And I'd even seen some of your uh, posts and other things, I guess, in just similar spheres. But when we we started talking, I think what was interesting, and I, I kind of had already known this but didn't really fully appreciate it, was how while the technology that may be going in the ground is new or even not new, just different... Uh, the actual implementation is very similar to things that have already been around, especially in the real estate space for quite a while. Um, So could you share a little bit about that and maybe just some of the challenges that for those who are new to the space might not have been uh, expecting?
1: Right, so that's totally on point um, and very insightful. I mean that in a really good way. That's something actually that a lot of people do not necessarily pick up on. So if you were to look back through history with the way that the wireless telecommunications industry was 20 or 25 years ago, and you would see that the way things were done then and how things are being done now, and you would look at the EV infrastructure industry and see the way that things are being done now and put on, you know, your your time travel right, lens and see how things might look in about 20 or 25 years from now, I bet you you're going to see a ton of similarities. So in that respect, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. So when the wireless industry first got started, you had a situation where towers and building installations were pretty much put just about anywhere Where you would find somebody who might be willing to have that infrastructure on their property. That's almost about as far as people went with trying to figure out where to put it. They didn't necessarily have the data and the analytics yet. They didn't have a massive customer base yet. But they started to think, oh, it might make sense that in this particular city or in this particular location, we might need to put equipment down. And they did that. And unfortunately, a lot of times when they did that, they did not necessarily do their homework they did not necessarily do their due diligence they didn't always pick the most ideal locations for the equipment they didn't realize that in some of the places where they chose to put the equipment that they might run into issues with access or with maintenance none of those things kind of like went into the to the thought process and at some point in time the wireless telecommunications industry really started to realize not doing these things created some problems. So, I'll give you a hypothetical example. So hypothetically, if you entered into a contract with somebody that didn't have the authority to sign the contract, or let's say you entered into a contract with someone that didn't actually own the property where you were putting the equipment. By the way, I'm giving you real world examples. Yeah. Okay. You say the way you said hypothetical, <laughs> I, I kind of feel like you're
0: saying. <laughs> How they say in uh, the old cop shows, the names have been changed to protect the innocent.
1: Correct, to protect the innocent. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we won't won't use anybody's names. Yeah, we're definitely not going to do that. (laughs) But so if you didn't do those things, or I'll give you another example. Let's say that you didn't do a title search and discover that there might be some issues with the property where you were going to put the equipment down, or... You didn't get a set of corporate documents from the person who signed the documents to make sure that they had the authority to sign those documents. Or I'll give you one other example, or let's say you didn't do a survey to figure out where your land and where your property is located because let's just say that the survey, if you had done it, may have given you an inkling that perhaps the piece of property you chose for the tower might be legally landlocked so leaving aside practical issues as to whether or not you could get a truck in there for maintenance if you were legally landlocked and your neighbors decided that they didn't like you and decided to put up a fence how are you getting to your tower the answer is you're not and how are you (laughs) how and 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 what's your recourse and the answer is you have not so What happened was that the telecommunications industry as a whole started to realize that we made some mistakes, at least by deploying the infrastructure that way, without looking into that stuff. I am seeing that kind of stuff happen (laughs) left and right right now in the EV infrastructure industry, and it's being driven by a whole bunch of things. I think in terms of not doing the due diligence and not doing the homework piece People are cheap and they don't want to spend the money to do it, but it's sort of similar to not wanting to buy a health insurance policy if you're an otherwise healthy person, right? Because if you're a healthy person, you don't really need health insurance. What do you need it for? How how often are you going to get sick, right? But when you do get sick, now you have the policy, right? And you know what happens if you don't have the insurance policy. Now you end up with a bill with hundreds of thousands of dollars, So people aren't thinking about it that way until they really need it. And then they kind of have that light bulb moment and they say, oh boy, what did we just do here? So I'm starting to see a lot of that and I'm trying to prevent people from doing that. I'm trying to prevent my clients from making some of those mistakes. So some of those basic things are really severely lacking. And that's part of why you are seeing so much, so much trouble. I'll give you another example. I think another reason why we're running into problems is that in terms of let's, – let's just say right now, again, hypothetically, we didn't have those problems that I just mentioned. Let's just say that they did their homework, and so they did a title search, and they did a survey, and they asked for the corporate documents, and they made sure everybody had authority, sign everything, so you had none of those problems, right? But now you have an issue where you've put your charging in, and it, now it needs to be maintained or it breaks, and you don't have any language in the contract that covers who is supposed to be responsible for that. Or if you do have language in the contract that says who's supposed to be responsible for it, there's no teeth to it.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: there is no incentive to be accountable because nothing bad will happen to you. The, the easiest example I can give is that if you're supposed to pay rent by the first of the month and you don't pay it, what happens Unless you have something in the contract that says you're in trouble for not paying on the first of the month, nothing happens, right? And if all the contract says is you're bad, what happens? Still nothing. If it says you have to pay it by the fifth, what happens? You can pay it by the fifth, but there's no penalty if you don't pay it by the fifth. Are you going to pay it by the fifth? Sometimes, but probably (laughs) not, right? Just why do you need to? So... We're starting to see those kinds of problems in some of the contracts also, where you have language that should be in there that's missing. It doesn't say who's responsible for maintenance, or if it says who's responsible for maintenance, it doesn't say how quickly they have to roll a truck. It doesn't say within what time frame that they're obligated to provide spare parts. It doesn't say what they're supposed to do if people need to get on the phone and call somebody. It has none of that stuff in there. So if the contract is missing some of those things and then let's say you have a charger in the ground that's broken and it's not being fixed and you have no number where you're supposed to call somebody or even if you have a number where you're supposed to call somebody, there is no metric or time frame within which they're supposed to respond. And then even if there is that time frame or that metric that you use to determine when they're supposed to respond, if there's no penalty, if they don't respond in time, then you get the mess that we have. And so we're starting to see a lot of those things. So on a positive note, I think what started to happen way back when in the wireless industry is they begun to realize that we need to clean up our contracts because we need to have appropriate language in there. We need to have some teeth to uh, some of the penalties. We need to incentivize accountability. We have to lay out so that way it's clear for everybody who is responsible for what we have to make sure that we do our due diligence and we do our homework so that way we make sure that we're putting the assets in a safe place to begin with in addition to all the other stuff that we have to do. And as that stuff starts to happen, the business and, and the industry starts to mature and it starts to improve. So if you think about right now, what was your cell phone like 20 or 25 years ago? We know the answer. It was service was spotty. You couldn't. The battery lasted a lot longer. (laughs) Yeah, that was about the only pro. That was about the the only pro, right? Because we didn't have all these apps that were just sucking energy out of the phone. (laughs) But but the service was spotty. It wasn't so great. You couldn't go from one network to the other, right? The equipment kind of worked. Didn't always work. You had frequently you had outages, and you had all sorts of problems. But right now. You pick up your phone, it works. You make a phone call, you can talk to somebody across the world, it works. If you have a problem with it, you know what you do. You call, <coughs> Excuse me. You call customer service, and for the most part, they're going to be able to solve your problem. And if they can't solve your problem, what do they do? They'll send you a new phone. Now, I'm not saying yeah. that people should send you, you know, um, a new EV, that might be a little bit ridiculous, but you right. get the idea, right? There's something built in to, to deal with some of those issues. And so I think consistently we're seeing a lot of instances where those things weren't being done. And when you add in the, the rush to do the deployment, and when you add in the fact that there were financial incentives to deploy the infrastructure, But it didn't come with similar incentives for uptime and maintenance. You ended up with a situation where chargers were going in the ground where they didn't really need to go or shouldn't have gone in the first place. People were paid money just to deploy them. Then they weren't being used. And when they're not being used, then they're being ignored. When they're being ignored, they're being vandalized. And when they're being vandalized, they don't work. And because the chargers were in places where nobody is using them and it's expensive to fix them, the company that put it there doesn't want to spend money to fix it. Because why should they? Why put money into an underperforming real estate asset? If For you, sure. It, right? If you have a shopping center and the neighborhood doesn't isn't so good anymore and people are not coming into the shopping center and nobody's coming in there, and your tenants are starting to, like, stop paying rent because they can't afford to do it anymore because business stinks. As a property owner, what are you going to do with that piece of property? You're probably going to look to unload it, but you're certainly not going to invest more money into an underperforming asset. Right. So the EV infrastructure companies are kind of looking at this the same way. If it's an underperforming asset, we're not going to spend money to fix something that's not going to give us a return. And on top of that, they don't even have an obligation to put money into it anyway. So
0: right. when you put all that
1: stuff together, you almost have like a perfect storm.
0: For sure. And I, I mean, already this has brought up so many questions. Uh, and and yeah, just There's so a lot many, of layers here, Chase. Yeah, there's so many <laughs> topics. So I, I think even just for people who are listening, let's take it one kind of step back. So mm-hmm. you've already kind of built a really good foundation to show how similar it is to the traditional wireless energy uh, industry. Mm-hmm. Could you are are there any differences that you could share or anything that you've noticed about working in this industry that's really stood out to you
1: Yeah, um I would say some of the stuff that that for sure are major differences, I would say number one would be the ubiquity in that in the sense that right now, just about every person that you know has a cell phone, certainly in developed countries, who doesn't have a cell phone? Everybody has right. a cell phone right. right. So in the EV industry you don't have that right now. You still have a very small percentage of drivers out there that are have switched over to electric vehicles. So percentage-wise it's a much smaller group of the overall let's say vehicle population For as sure. opposed to right now every person that needs to communicate Essentially, has a cell phone. Either they have an iPhone or they have an Android. I mean, leaving aside the few others that are left, but you know, they're they're right. they're so small that they're almost non-existent. But that so everybody has one. So that's certainly something that's very different. I would say also in terms of the the amount of the infrastructure and the size of it is also very different. For the most part, in the wireless industry. You have very large cell phone towers where you have large installations on top of buildings. We'll just use that as an example. If you go, let's say we were to look in the the solar business, rooftop installations, but then massive solar farms. So the right. size of the infrastructure, for the most part, it's big and bigger. There's some smaller examples of that if you do like distributed antenna systems. You might have just small antennas in a couple of different places. You might have what they refer to as backhaul, which is generally just an antenna or two, just supplementing. But for the most part, they're larger installations. When you get into the the EV business, you're a little bit all over the place. (laughs) You might have an individual charger in one place, and that might be the only thing that anybody put in. You might have, let's say, a shopping center where you have four or five of them. You might have brand-new construction, let's say a brand-new apartment building where they're building a building where they want it to be as technically up-to-date as possible, and they might put in a whole bunch of it. Or you might have uh, a parking facility or a college campus or something like that where you might see it on a larger scale. Or let's say in the fleet industry. Right? There are some pretty well-known companies that have switched over their fleets or in the process of switching over their fleets to go all electric. Probably the two biggest ones that everybody has, probably knows about or if they don't know about would be like Domino's Pizza. Most of their delivery vehicles right now are electric, or let's just use Amazon because they're doing electric vehicles for a lot of their last-mile delivery. So they're doing that on a very large scale. So you really, ha- you really run the gamut. In terms of just a little bit of EV charging all the way up to really fancy stuff. And the other thing that, that, that you see in the EV industry that's, that's kind of different is that in terms of charging, you can have an individual charger that could be in somebody's home. could be what we refer to as a level one. It doesn't even have to be a level two because you can get away with, you know, hours yeah. that it takes to charge overnight. You don't need anything that sophisticated in your house other than something a little bit better than your standard plug, but that's the easiest visual for people to understand. And we go all the way up to like what you would call DCFC's level three fast charging where they can charge up your Porsche in 15 minutes, right? But you, right. you, right. Need, you really need to have very specific infrastructure to be able to, 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 to handle that. So we do run the gamut in terms of the type of infrastructure, and the industry is still at a point in time where what you deploy really needs to match the use case of where you're putting it. In the real estate world, what, what are the three most important things? It's location, location, and location. Right. And you want to make sure that the infrastructure that you're putting in matches to the use case. The type of EV infrastructure that you might put – in a major mobility corridor along a highway is not the same kind of thing that you might put in your single-family home.
0: For sure, for sure.
1: But when it comes to the telecoms industry, it's pretty consistent in terms of the stuff that's going in the ground. There are towers, there there are building installations, and that's, for the most part, kind of what you see everywhere. So that's something that's certainly different. Right? There's there's a greater variety of the of the infrastructure and the infrastructure use cases in the EV industry than you might see in something like the wireless telecommunications industry or what you might see in the solar business or you might see in the outdoor advertising business. Outdoor advertising for the most part you're talking billboards in very dense neighborhoods you're going to be putting in more of them, assuming that the laws allow you to do it. In other places, you might only have a sign-up every couple of miles along a highway. But the type of infrastructure that you're putting in really, really varies in the EV world, depending, really depending upon the location and really depending upon the use case. So that's certainly something that's different. Interesting.
0: And that that does make sense. So, uh, I, I appreciate that, kind of the, the context of where those differences are in the spaces, and I, I think that makes sense to a lot of the listeners, too. My next question is, can you, uh, I mean, <laughs> there's quite a few different questions out right now, but can you walk through what would be, like, a maybe just a normal deal? Like, is it at least for 10 years, yada, 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 and again, all that oh, stuff, or-
1: yeah, can there's you, so uh, many layers to that question, Chase. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> so the answer is is that I wouldn't say that there isn't something that you would cons- that I would consider from my perspective to be a typical deal. Gotcha. In the sense that we are very much still in the Wild West stage in the way that twenty plus years ago in the wireless telecom industry we're in the Wild West stage. And by that I mean is that when they first started doing that, you would see leases, you would see licenses. I know we're getting into a little bit of legal terminology, but for the listeners, there is a difference between a lease agreement and a license agreement, and let's just use the example of an easement agreement. Those are all very different types of legal structures. So you would kind of see things where that was a little bit all over the place. What you would also see is all over the place would be Payment structures, are they paying rent? I can tell you the one thing that didn't come in the, in the wireless telecom industry, but if it was out there, I have not seen it yet, is some sort of revenue share. I guarantee you that if you would go to any one of the, let's say you had a tower on your property and you went to the wireless company that was leasing the space for the tower on your property, and you said, I want some kind of a revenue share from all the customers that are coming through your antennas, They would look at you like you're crazy. Now, they do do some form of revenue share if they sometimes bring in additional tenants. So this gets us a little bit into the nitty-gritty of this, but just for purposes of example, if you had a tower company that was leasing the space for the tower, their business model is to bring other wireless tenants onto the tower. So they might pay you, let's say, I'll use stupid numbers, they'll pay you $1,000 a month to put the tower on the ground, but then they in turn may might make separate agreements with three or four different wireless companies who will then put their equipment on the tower, who will then pay rent to the tower company, not necessarily to you as the owner. You as the owner, you're still only getting your $1,000 a month. You might be able to work right. out so a revenue kind of like a share sub- with them. Interesting, it's so, like so it's kind of like sub-lease. a sublease. Yeah, interesting. Right. You might be able to work something out with them. Where, oh, if you bring an additional tenant, you're not have to pay me an extra $100 a month. But the reason why mm-hmm. I'm giving you this example is that if you went to, to the company and said, I want some revenue in my pocket based on the traffic that you are generating and the money that you are making from your cell phone customers who are using that tower, they would look at you like they would tell you to go pound sand. <laughs> They're not going to do that with you. Right. Now, in the EV industry right now, that is one of the one of the more common business models is some form of revenue sharing for the people that are coming in to use the charger on your property to charge up. Whether or not over time that will be a sustainable model, I don't know. It could be, it could be not. The one thing that I am not seeing so much of right now are EV charging companies paying rent to the property owner for the privilege of putting the charger down on their property. So not necessarily a revenue share, but hypothetically, we'll pay you $100 a month so we can put your charger here. And then the infrastructure company is getting all the money. So in that same vein, besides seeing those different business and payment structures, I've seen leases, I've seen licenses, I've seen easement agreements, all over the place. I've seen combinations of rent. I've seen combinations of revenue share. And there's a company out there who we will not name doesn't pay any rent. And their game is that when we put your stuff there, our stuff's really good. And it's going to be great advertising, by the way, for us, too. Don't tell anybody. Right. But also for you when people will see that you have this high-quality charging equipment on your property. And we will bring you more customers. And so by the more customers coming into your shopping center or to your business or to your parking facility, you will in turn be making more money because they're going to be coming when they see our equipment but they don't pay rent. So the, the models are, are really all over the place and it's really dependent on what the use case is. So let's just use the example that I gave you in the situation where they're not paying rent. If you don't have a business where you can, in turn, make money from the extra volume of vehicles that are now coming into your property to charge up, are you likely to accept zero rent as in exchange for signing a lease and giving the company the privilege of putting their equipment there? Probably not. If you're not sure whether or not you're going to consistently make money from more people coming in, might you turn around and go to the infrastructure company and say, I want some rent or I want some revenue share? Now, by the way, there are companies that will do that with you. They, they, they might be more apt to, to haggle and work those things out with you. But again, it's going to be dependent upon what your use case is. And I'll give you one other just to sort of turn the entire thing on its head. Let's just say that you're an apartment building and you want to be able to provide this as an amenity to your tenants You might do that you may charge your tenants across the board everybody in the building might have to pay a little bit more in monthly maintenance because you're doing that you might decide you only want to charge the people in the building who have evs a little bit of extra money for the privilege of being able to do that so you might be comfortable without accepting rent or a revenue share from the infrastructure company because your tenants are going to say, this is the greatest building in the world. I get the charge up here. This is awesome. Right. And it's really cheap, and I love it. And my, we have great rules, and we have no fights over who's using the charging. So, again, you, you really you have to look at this. And, and I think that it, my long-winded way of answering this question, Chase, <laughs> is that you have to look at this from a whole bunch of different directions. You have to look for at sure. the legal structures to see if it makes sense. You have to look at the business model to see if it makes sense. You have to know your, your tenants and your customers to see if it makes sense. You need to know if you, there is sufficient volume in the neighborhood where you're living in order to put the chargers in. One of my favorite examples of this, and we've all seen it, the picture of the charger on a road in the middle of nowhere where there's nothing around you except for mountains. What's Ryan. that doing there? Who's charging up over there? Right. So you need you need to know your local market and whether or not it's going to make sense for you to spend money on putting the infrastructure in a place. Will people come? Will people use it? Will you make money from it? These are all sorts of questions that people are asking on all sides of the equation. And it's not as simple as, oh, this is great. We'll just put a charger in and people will come. Right. It's not that I, I simple. I say.
0: As someone who has done a lot of EV road trips, it is really nice when you do find that random one in the mountains because sometimes that saves <laughs> your butt. But yes, right. it it doesn't seem like it's a uh, long-term bu- uh, successful business if it's like one person right. every few days. But That's uh, I, I think one one thing I want to kind of ask you with, um, you did mention, Kanakoi, that the there is this company that doesn't charge rent. Mm-hmm. Does this company – Doesn't use- pay rent. <laughs> or I'm, I'm, yeah, it doesn't pay rent. Uh, is this company, are you familiar if they use a lot of data to present to these people as to why they should be <clears throat> doing it to kind of make their okay. case?
1: So this is, this is one of the great mysteries to which I am not necessarily privy to just yet. Gotcha. I would love to know a little more of exactly how they, in fact, pitch this. I, I can say anecdotally, based on stuff that I have seen, I have some idea about how they're doing their pitch. They're doing their pitch in a couple of ways. Part of their pitch is, we will bring you more customers. Whether or not they share that data with you, I suspect not. That's number one. Number two, the other thing that they do is that they also promise a very easy contracts process. And their contracts are very simple. I'll use that word. They're very simple. And simple can be good except if you go back to the example that I gave you before of the person that chose not to get health insurance. What do you do when there's a problem? When there's a problem, you may not have anybody you can call. For the most part, the equipment always works all the time, but then sometimes it doesn't. And then when it doesn't, what's your recourse if it doesn't? How do you deal with that? How quickly do they have to roll a truck? How quickly are they obligated to fix it? Uh, What's... So on and so forth. So those things right. would be missing. So it's an easy contract process. It's an easy sell because you're not going to need to mark it up. They probably don't mark it up very much, if at all. So it's an easy sell. So that, that kind of becomes one of those other issues. And that is the way in which, the, in which they're pitching that. And, and, and one of the things, and in fact, I, I actually have this on a slide that I'm using for a CLE that I'm going to be doing next month. One of the things that I try also to explain to people is that unless you as the property owner, unless you are buying all of the equipment, you are purchasing it for yourself, and you are independently handling all of the maintenance and all of the upkeep and everything else, and essentially the infrastructure company is selling you the equipment, and now you're using it on your property, much like you might use i don't know air conditioning equipment in your prop like it's yours you deal with it yes we might have a maintenance and a service contract so we'll come and fix it but basically it's it's your problem for the most Right. right so unless you're doing that you're not necessarily going to own the data and the analytics that you're getting from all the people that are coming and using now if you're putting that let's say into an apartment building you pretty much know who all the people are in your apartment building that are using it you don't You might want to know how often are people using, who are using it the most often, how much time are they spending on charging, uh, do you have a a tenant that is consistently, let's say you have a shared charger that they're consistently not moving their cars when they're supposed to. So you might want to know some of that data and some of those analytics, and some of that stuff might be shared with you, but it might not be. And that might be completely dependent on, once again, what is in your contract. What does it say about whether or not they're going to share that data with you? How much of that information are they going to provide to you? So for the most part, you don't get access to the data in general with any of the infrastructure companies. They're getting it. Which which does make
0: sense. I I was just kind of curious. I I didn't think they would maybe be giving uh, very concrete numbers, but I could say like, this is what we're seeing average, what we predict may be average traffic. Right. And the average consumer, if they wanted to get really like, of who drives an EV or buys our products makes X numbers from what we can tell. Um, I, I do also have just another follow-up question in this company that we keep alluding to. Is this company, uh, <laughs> yeah. I think I know who we're talking about, but is this company also one that has be- their own uh, essentially team that goes around fixing these? Because that has been, talked <coughs> about maintenance, that has been one of the big issues is there's only a, handful uh, of charging companies that actually has their own teams most of the time they have to hire it out to local engineers
1: right so some of them do their own maintenance some of them are hiring outside companies to do that if you as a property owner are working with any one of these ev infrastructure companies you would hope that they're going to prompt that they're going to provide you with a couple of things so you were talking about to your point earlier about Are there cars in the neighborhood? Will people need it? Will they use it? And so on and so forth. That becomes really relevant if you are making it available to the public. I would hope that the infrastructure company, as part of their pitch to convince you to put their charging equipment on your property, is explaining to you, here's how we came up with why we decided that we think your property is a good candidate for this. I suspect in some instances with some of the less reputable companies, maybe they're not providing that information or if they're providing that information, they're not providing the whole picture because it's not outside the realm of possibilities that some people were focused more on the sale and the land grab and to get the infrastructure in the ground somewhere, anywhere, it doesn't matter. right? The really good companies, I, I, I would hope, are sharing that information as part of their pitch to convince you that it makes sense for it to go into your property. Now, by the way, on the flip side of that, if it turns out that your property is not a good location for this, you would think that they would move on and go to somebody else. But I'll leave that, I'll leave that out there for the moment, right? Um, so that's, that's going to be part of what, what goes into that. One of the things that's really good for the companies that do everything, and there are companies that do everything, They do the charging, they do the vehicles, they do the maintenance, they do the upkeep, they do everything. They really have the ability to have consistent control over it. And because of that, they they also have access to all of the data. So also when it comes time to figure out where might we need other charging infrastructure, they probably know better than anybody else on the planet where it makes sense to put their stuff. Because not only do they have the cars, but they also have the chargers. They have the maintenance. That They do everything. They have the data for everything. They know right. how quickly, it, how much time it takes to repair in a particular place. They know how, much, how often you have problems. They know where the cars go, where they stop, how much time they're in them, so on and so forth. You can slice it and dice it as many ways as you want. Which, by the way, is the exact way in which the telecommunications companies determine where to put their towers and their infrastructure. How do they do that? They know where their customers are. They know where they need it. And based on that, they decide where to put it. What's happened a lot, and this is one of the things where we go back to sort of our sameness and differences with the industry, is that in a lot of instances, a lot of the early infrastructure was just put wherever. And by the way, not necessarily in a bad way either because you didn't have the data at the beginning to know where to go. Now we're so much better at this. Now we have millions of these cars on the roads. Now we know where they are. There are companies, beside the EV infrastructure companies, there are companies that specialize in providing this data and making it available to you so you can figure it out. If you think that your corner is a good spot for it, there are all sorts of applications out there that can tell you where the other charges are in the neighborhood, who owns them, how far away they are, how many people in the vicinity own EVs, what are the likelihood that people will come and charge up at your location versus the one that's down the block. Do you need one at your location? Is the one that's down the block or the one that's in the other direction enough for all the people in the neighborhood and maybe you don't need to spend the money and to go through the trouble to put it on your property? So we have more of that information that's available. And I think what will start to happen is that over time, as more of the data becomes accessible, leaving aside the company that keeps it to themselves, but as more of the data starts to become accessible, we'll be able to make smarter decisions about where to put the infrastructure in the first place. And if we make smarter decisions about where to put the infrastructure in the first place, we will have fewer and fewer situations where it's not working, it's not being maintained, and you know we're not going to have the horror stories that we have of people rolling up the chargers that just don't work for all the reasons we spoke about before.
0: Right, and that that makes a lot of sense. What's interesting is we've had a couple people on as guests who have kind of just said, you know, what uh, having the data is great, but it's the actual building process, the permitting, all this stuff is taking so long, mm-hmm. and there is kind of just. It's just good to get it in the ground because once you have it on the ground, then you can go back and update it later. Is that you think still a worthy? It sounds like you bring an interesting opinion and kind of experience with it, but you disagree with that a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. There,
1: there, there, there is certainly something to be said. If you build it, they will come. Right, that's gotcha. one of the greatest. That's one of the greatest movie lines of all time. Anyway, right? I mean, right? Like field of Dreams, right? <laughs> Um, any boy that's into baseball will know that, right? If you build it, they will come. So there is something to be said for that. On the other hand, it does take a lot of time to permit, to make sure that it's zoned, to get your electricity in, to do the actual construction work, to get all the equipment that you need. So that stuff does take time. And I think because it does take time, that goes back to why it is so critical to do the homework in advance and to make sure that you're putting the equipment in a place where it makes sense to put it. So, you know, the example I gave you before of somebody not doing their homework and not looking at a title and a survey and all of that other stuff, I have a real world example of that where somebody did not do that, put a charger in somewhere where they were legally landlocked. And once they got legally landlocked and that fence went up and people could not use their charger. They had 18 months' worth of work that went up and went poof. Wow. Now, so you tell me, what do you think would have made more sense? Build it so they will come? Yeah, sure, get it in the ground, get it, and then we'll worry about the problems afterwards? Or should we have spent a little bit of money and time in looking into this property and possibly discovering that we were legally landlocked and maybe we should have gone, I don't know, across the street, down the block, or maybe not in this vicinity to begin with. So totally fair. <laughs> it, 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 it does, it does, it does cut both ways. It does cut yeah. both ways.
0: Well, and I, I think we, the way you're approaching it makes a lot of sense. And I, I can also see the argument like, okay, maybe due to supply chain, we can't get everything we want, but let's just get this location, get the stuff we can, and then come back later and do it.
1: Right. Now, but by the way, I, if you've, if you've done all your homework to determine right. that this location is an ideal place, then it might make sense to wait I mean wait but for it to take the time that it needs to take because when you're right. done doing all of that you will have a, a perfect place where the charging is needed where it will be utilized where it will be used and we'll, where everybody will consistently make, make money from it. One other way that I think is helpful to think about this if I gave you the example of one company that did not do its homework and just put their chargers down wherever and grabbed land and figured would deal with the problems afterwards versus a company that took its time, was methodical about this, actually thought about where it made sense to put it, did their homework, discovered that this location is no good, this location might be great, but the person that wants to sign this contract with me can't. So I don't think we're doing anything with him. We'll go to a neighbor. And so the company that did that or does that and then puts the infrastructure in the ground, if you had a choice between investing in that company versus the other one, where would you put your money? Right. I know where I would put my money. Right.
0: Uh, so, I, God, I've got so many questions for you, and I, I'm trying to be <laughs> respectful of our time here. But uh, the variable of time is obviously the big one we talked about a lot when it comes to these installations, and we've talked about it today. What, what do you find, and maybe it's location and site specific, but what, what have you found to be like the biggest variables in the implementation process and maybe the biggest variables people aren't uh, expecting uh, that can kind of trip them up with that?
1: Yeah, I would say the number one mistake is not doing your due diligence and not doing your homework. I know I keep harping on that, but that's yeah. that is that's just huge. That yeah. that that just saves you so much time um, and energy run, and yeah. money in the long run. And Fair. it helps to have it helps to have a long game focus. So that is for sure number one. As a practical matter, what can be the biggest problem? It could almost be anything. It could be your zoning process. It could be your permitting process. It could be working with your local utility company to to get it done. It could be the negotiation of your contract and your service level agreements. Um, It could be the sort of thing where, uh, let's say, as a business, you decide you're going to kind of do the a la carte thing. And you're going to get your own charges and do your own service and do your own software and do everything because maybe you thought that that made sense. But any one of the pieces in that cog can slow you down. Whereas versus, if you went with a company that's kind of a, a one-stop shop, you're really doing one agreement. They're taking care of all of that other stuff on right. the back end. That makes it a little bit of a, of a of a smoother process. Then the other thing also is that the maintenance and the upkeep, that that can be a huge problem if you don't deal with that from the get-go, in terms of determining who's responsible for what. I'll say there's another thing also is also power load and power management. That's also right. huge. You need to look into that piece two because i have heard stories of a building where they say you can only use charge a car for an hour that's it you get a maximum of an hour a day that's not going to work for most people even at a level two like that's just not going to be enough time and they're either making that decision because they're not knowledgeable they don't understand how much time it takes it could be they're making that decision because the way their contract is set up, they are paying for all of the electricity, and they don't want to foot the bill. And so they feel if they limit people to an hour, it will cost them less money. Um, it could also be there aren't enough chargers in the building. It could also be that the building can't handle the power load because right. they didn't think of all of those things. There's just so many pieces to this that go above and beyond just putting the darn thing in the ground and saying, hey, we did it.
0: Right,
1: right. So, there's 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 a lot of stuff that can throw you sideways, Chase. For sure,
0: and I I think to maybe reframe uh, the con- the question I've been asking indirectly a lot, I guess. Let's, given your experience, let's just walk through. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's just walk through like what would be your ideal installation process, or like how what would be your ideal installation? And then one of the things we discuss a lot on this channel is like is there a business model for EV charging outside of being like a Flying J or the traditional one or like a Tesla that has kind of revenues from across the board? So Mm -hmm. I think it'd be really interesting um, with the time we have to go through how you would design kind of the ideal charging uh, location and if you can share like anything around even the ideal business model for doing such.
1: Right, okay, so before I answer that question, if we're going to use, if we're going to go there, let's pick a particular type of location, and then we can have that discussion. Because the answer to that question is completely dependent upon the location and the use case. For sure, and yeah, I, th- totally I think that's different. a great
0: call. Um, and to clarify, I'm thinking like level three fast charging. So let's say, okay, let's level let's three think fast about charging, maybe inner city or not inner city, but. Um, between cities for road mm-hmm. tripping or something.
1: Okay, so that's, that's good. Now we, have an, now we have a vision in our head, and now based on that, I can answer that question. So if you're doing <laughs> level three fast charging in a major mobility corridor, the place where it would, be, would make the most sense to put it is along a highway or near, with very close distance to a highway exit or off-ramp. That's probably where you would be thinking to put it. You would also want it to be an appropriate distance between two locations where it would make sense that people might be stopping part of the way to charge up. So if you have an urban area and a suburban area and people are traveling from a suburb into a major city. Somewhere along that mobility corridor is a place where it would make sense to put the DCFC fast charging. People coming from work, going to home. People going from home to work. Somewhere in there makes sense to put it. So that's how you have to think about that piece of it. The other thing that you have to think about this ideally is, again, you would need to know, are there people in that suburban area with a lot of EVs? And if there are, then it makes sense to now put the fast charging probably where most of those people might be going commute to work. That's one way, one part of looking at this. You also need to know the power requirements for a level three DCFC fast charger. They're massive. So you would need to know how close are you to the closest substation where you can draw that power. You might want to think about putting in fast chargers in that location that have on-site battery backup, and power storage. Why would you want to do that? Because at the most expensive time or busiest times of the day, not only will you have more volume and more people coming in to charge up, but guess what? It costs more money for the electricity that you're going to use at that time of the day because, of course, the utility companies charge you a premium for providing electricity at peak hours. So if you have a battery system in that fast charger – You might be able to draw power at cheaper periods of time. That way you store the power in there, and that way when people show up at, let's say, 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, power is available, and it's not hyper-expensive because you pulled the cheaper power from the grid at different times of the day. So you might want to think about doing doing a battery-backed-up fast charger in that location. Then you need to also, what are your contracts going to look like? you need to do a title search you would need to de- a sur- do a survey you would want to you know you want you might want to see a photosim of what it's going to look like so that way you can visually imagine how that's going to appear you would want to make sure that the person that you're entering into that contract with and that owns the land on the side of the highway whether it's your your state your county or a private person has actually the ability to enter into that contract with you then you would want to look at your contract terms from the get-go. Who is going to be responsible for the maintenance? What's going to happen when that charger breaks? If it's in a location where a lot of people are going to be using this charger and relying on it regularly, you probably want your maintenance window to be very short. Is there a company that... and, I, and I know this, and this is all great.
0: I'm, I'm just kind of curious. Are there... Is there like an average length uh, term... Is it like mm-hmm. three years and auto renews? Or what, what have you seen to be kind of uh, normal around that? Everything. <laughs> okay. I've seen everything.
1: So right now what you generally so this, get – in this
0: ideal situation, what would you do? Or what would you so, say that the term should be? So
1: I would say that you would probably want – from the perspective of both the owner on the property and the company that's doing the investment, you probably want a lease – 10 years, 15 years, something like that, because you're both making an investment in this. You right. both want to know that you're going to be able to consistently make money over time. right? This is, This is as much an investment for the property owner as it is for the infrastructure company and as it is for the industry. Typically, what you will see in a lot of wireless agreements, and you will see this in outdoor advertising agreements and things like that, is you will see something like a five-year term or an initial, let's say, 10-year term, and then you'll see five-year terms that will automatically renew after that. And you're looking at like 25 to 30-year leases. I think right now the industry is probably a little too immature for people to be willing to commit to a 30-year lease because
0: interesting, yeah,
1: it's probably going to change a lot over time. At the same time, it might take five years to actually see a sufficient return on that investment from both the owner and the infrastructure company for it to be worth it for them to do that. And you want to know, if you're, certainly if you're investing in the infrastructure, you want to know that you're, you're going to be there for at least the next five to ten years without the owner throwing you out. From the owner's perspective, right. they also want to know that they're going to be able to see some money consistently over time. So I think if you had a situation where you had leases for that five-year window and they would automatically renew – unless there are reasons to not do it, and then we, you know, then we really start getting into the weeds as to how you would do that. But I think something like that would probably begin to make some sense. That, that, that gives uh, everybody the feeling that there's some staying power to this and that it's going to be a worthwhile investment from both ends because we know that the infrastructure is going to be here for a while and hopefully consistently paying over time. So in terms, of the, in terms of the length of time, that's probably the sort of thing that you would want to see. And the other thing also is that you would also want to make sure that that contract gives you the ability to upgrade your equipment as, as it changes and as it improves. And that is something that you see across the board with solar and with wind and with wireless telecom. They always have that built into the contracts and to the agreements. Yes, we might be putting this particular type of DCFC in the ground today. But it could turn out that the equipment improves to such a great extent that we might want to take it out and put something in better. Or we might want to um, upgrade the, uh, the internals of that equipment so that way it's charging faster and better and cheaper and more efficiently and so on and so forth. You would want to have the ability to essentially be able to freely do that without necessarily being interfered with or being, having the property owner interfering with you. Of course, you know right. you're not taking more space. You're not interfering with the real estate that they've given you, but you want to be able to upgrade your equipment as you need it from from both perspectives. And there from, could be potential
0: from, downtime or some other things to do that. That I, correct? Got you. Yeah, interesting. Uh, well, that that's really fascinating. Are, are there any other things you would say to that? Um, or is that kind of it at a high level for a uh, fast I, I, I would
1: say that. The other thing also is access is absolutely critical in terms yeah. of uh, maintenance and repairs. Really critical, especially in our in our example of the DCFC. That is why it's so important to do the title search and to do the survey. Because really, that equipment in particular is very expensive. It costs money to maintain it. There is a lot of work behind the scenes that has to go in in order to get that equipment going. You really have to have your agreement going with your with the power company, with power line there's way more work that goes into a level three fast charger, right, than your typical at home level one setup. It's, it's a right. whole different ballgame. And yeah. if you're making and especially if you're making that type of investment, which by the way could easily be six figures, I would it would behoove you To do that and to know that you can consistently access it, that the contract gives you the ability to maintain it, that you're going to be able to keep it there for, you know, a consistent period of time. Those are all the things that would really need to go into that in terms of that, let's say, being an ideal situation, right? And by the way, we didn't even touch on whether or not it could be zoned and permitted for that sort of thing. Mm. You also would need to know that the spot that you picked that you think might be ideal in terms of the location for people to come and charge, that it's zoned and you would be able to get the permitting for that particular location too. Just just
0: a small thing to be aware of, just right? a
1: few Just a few little things. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly.
0: So in, in that example, we talked about DC fast charging between cities. Uh, you know, there's been a lot in the news, like recently Chicago, and I, I've heard a lot about Brooklyn specifically. If you have an EV, it's mm. really hard to find. Yes. If you don't have level two, you're pretty much in, you're out of luck, and especially yeah. DC fast charging. And I I realize, once again, we're kind (laughs) of, we've got so much we can talk about, but like at a high level, are there any things for an inner, kind of like inside of a city center when building uh, DC fast charging to be aware of that we might not have uh, covered in that recent example?
1: Yeah, I would say that in in many urban areas, doing DC fast charging is going to be incredibly difficult, if not close to impossible. Because in dense urban areas, you already have massive needs for power. So to put that type of charging into a dense urban area does not necessarily make so much sense. And again, keep in mind that people that are coming to charge up quickly and to move on to go somewhere quickly do not necessarily need that. In an urban setting, it makes more sense to have level two charging, hypothetically, in apartment buildings or in parking garages. We won't even get into discussing putting it into parking garages in New York City and in the five boroughs, because that presents a whole host of other problems. But it would make more sense to have level two charging where people live. For the most part, and I think this is one of the stats that you've heard, I've heard, we've all heard this. And I don't know where the numbers come from, but I think everybody has essentially accepted this as... This is the way it is. But something like 80% of people are charging up their EVs in private homes.
0: For sure. Most
1: people are charging up. So if you can provide EV charging in places where people consistently leave their cars for extended periods of time, like in shopping centers, like in, uh, in apartment buildings, that's where that kind of makes sense. And that goes back to the comment and our, our the little discussion we had before about the infrastructure matching up to the use case. Totally. Level the, the uh, 3 charge charging doesn't necessarily make sense in the middle of Brooklyn. It just doesn't. I, I,
0: I totally, totally agree with you on that. I think the reason I bring it up, this wasn't kind of the detail that was getting a lot of the attention, but obviously the big thing that was happening recently, like Chicago, I think was everywhere in the EV news, was about people couldn't charge. And the thing that wasn't really being covered was the vast majority of those people having issues were actually kind of Uber and Lyft and rideshare drivers mm-hmm. who don't have a place that they can charge overnight. And because they're doing so many, they need they need a DC fast charger so they can get back on the road make a fare, which right. totally makes sense. But I think that what really stood out to me and opened up the question going back to fleets is like, Mm-hmm. In that sort of example, you would have like commercial fueling usually for something similar. And then that kind of begs right. the question of like, how are these companies, you- especially if they want to do that? Like, like, how do they? Uh, I'm trying to think of what the chain is, and it might just be here on the West, like, but like Pacific Fueling, which is a purely commercial fueling uh, chain that trucks and other like businesses can go to to get fuel. It really does seem like, especially in that use case, there needs to be a uh, commercial specific charging. Which has it that it makes sense that regular people one may not need it need it, but two, it just opens up the charges for those who really do, and then they mm-hmm. have a place that they can go charge. i'm I'm curious right. if that's something you've seen or have heard discussions around that yet.
1: I, I have definitely heard some discussions around that, and I have a couple of ideas about how that might work well. So I'll give you an example of what does not work well, and then I'll give you my thoughts of what I think would work well. So the Perfect. example of what I think does not work well, is I want you to imagine in your head or our listeners should imagine a rideshare pickup line in a typical airport. I'll be traveling to a conference next week. I'll be going to an airport. I'm sure I'm going to get to see this, right? Every time you travel, you see this and all the rideshare cars come and go this. So um, if you were to put a level two charger in the rideshare pickup line, let me ask you this question, Chase. Do you think that that would make sense when you know that your typical Uber and Lyft driver is not allowed to sit and wait for you for more than five minutes. Does a right. level two charger in the rideshare pickup line make any sense? No, it does not. Yet, I have seen this in an airport. Now, that to me is just, it's stupid. It's, a dumb, it's what I would call a dumb deployment. Right. It makes no sense. All right, I can yeah. maybe see level three charging, but yeah, especially level two. Maybe I mean, you've
0: got you got to have something that's like right, and even then, that yeah, I, I I I agree. Well,
1: even level three, they're not sitting there for more than five minutes, right? And even a level three right now with the existing technology, and not everybody has a Porsche Taycan that can do it. Yeah. But you still have to do it for, for twenty I, I, minutes. I agree. It's it's a stretch. Right? It's like it's it, a stretch. It,
0: yeah. Exactly. All
1: right. So now let me give you what I think is is the way to kind of solve that problem.
0: So now
1: you now now you have all these people that are coming to do the rideshare pickups. They they they're coming they're they're coming, they're picking up their passengers. They can only stay for 5 minutes. What if there was a place nearby where they could actually sit? So I'll give you the example of uh, I live in New York and there is a cell phone pickup lot At JFK Airport, leaving aside the fact that I don't know how many people actually use it, because when you drive by on the highway, you see dozens and dozens and dozens of cars sitting on the side of the highway waiting to get into the airport, not using the cell phone pickup parking lot, which, by the way, they advertise is free. But I guess people don't use it because probably once you get into that pickup lot, it's a pain in the neck to get to your terminal. So people prefer to sit outside of the airport and wait for their friends and family to call them. And then they go in and pick them up. But let's just pretend that there was a, an off-site uh, parking facility where you could sit, where you might be sitting as you wait to get your hails, where there is room, where there is space, where there is infrastructure, where you could put in chargers. Would it make more sense to put them in that place and let the rideshare people sit in that parking facility? They can charge up while they wait. And then when they're ready to go to the airport, they just go. And not only that, they've probably either charged up fully or close to 80% or something like that. And now they can continue to go about their day and about their business in terms of being able to charge up. So it would make more sense to have an off-site location where you could do level 2 or maybe even level 3 charging that would match the use case there. As opposed to putting it in a place where it really makes no sense. So – I don't know if there are people out there that think that you might have a piece of property. Would something like that make sense? Come and talk to me, right? Because I know people that might be willing to, to work with <laughs> totally. you to do something like that, right? So there, those, are the, those are the kinds of things. So that would be an example of like what doesn't make sense, but what could potentially make sense. And that would be a good way to kind of solve, kind of solve that issue. Those people would then have a place to sit where they can charge up hopefully be a place with lots where, where there's light and there are bathrooms and it's safe and so on and so forth, but where it would make sense for them to be sitting and charging as opposed to putting the charger in the pickup line where it makes
0: no sense. Right. and No, I, I completely agree with you, and that, that makes a lot of sense. I think one of the other interesting things I've seen, I, I think that makes sense, and then I was actually at a Sonic uh, drive through uh, on a road trip and they had one in Boise where there was like eight Tesla superchargers and cool. they were kind of the newer higher power one, but it also just kind of made sense. People would come in, get food, they would charge, but, and I, I think this is another thing I kind of want to talk to you real quick, but obviously Tesla has it. So it's like you go in, you charge, they have fees if you're there charging too long and all this stuff, which mm-hmm. I think is great to help with. I think it's great kind of thing to move you, incent- you, you
1: incentivize people to move their cars. Right. And
0: I I think naturally just, once again, that's kind of a good fusion. Like someone gets lunch, they have their lunch, they're off. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think specifically what you're talking about for like the commercial application, that use case, even better. But Mm -hmm. you do see still from some of the car brands, they offer the free charging, the free uh, kind of like, okay, you can have for like two years. Have you dealt with that at all? Or do you see that as kind of something that's a short term sales push that, really is going to be probably not the best for getting that throughput and really creating the best EV charging experience.
1: Yeah, I th- I think as a short-term solution, it makes sense from the perspective of the car companies that are offering it. I think it indicates that they are acknowledging that publicly available EV charging might not be so great or easily available and if they and at the end of the day they want their customers to be happy and excited about their product that they're selling to them right. so offering that to them I think is a great idea because it, it keeps your customers happy and as a practical matter it keeps their chart their cars charged up and you think that they're going to tell their friends and family, hey, the experience with car company so-and-so is excellent because I get the charge up for free? By the way, there are people but, that are on that legacy plan with Tesla and they love to brag about it. Right, right? oh, for they're sure. Gra- they're grandfathered in and wherever they go, it doesn't cost them anything. No, and I, 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 think that's totally, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think that's totally true too because like it's especially for people who may be coming to like an electric vehicle for the first time, the idea that not only am I saving money by it being electric from gas, the fact that when I go fast charge, it's even free and saving even more money, right. I think kind of is a good incentive. And obviously, they talk about it a lot, but it also is like almost creating the wrong incentives for the larger EV drivers. But at the same time, like and in some ways, between the just general gas savings of even paying for electricity and not having to do the oil changes, that unto itself I think is a huge plus. Uh, right. But, yeah, I, I, I totally get what you're saying there. I'll tell you what
1: the problem is with that, though. Yeah. There is no such thing as a free lunch. For sure. When At I, the I end think... of the day, somebody, somebody is paying for that. So right. whether that will continue to be viable over the long term, I don't know. My hope is, is that the, the the state of publicly available infrastructure for EVs would improve to the point where you might not necessarily still have to provide that, or it could be the sort of thing where you just might provide it as a premium service. If you think about the way the airline industry works, you basically uh, have the same flight, whether you sit in first class, business class, or coach. But for a couple of extra premium services, people are willing to pay a lot more money for something like that. It's entirely possible that maybe for some of the, the higher-end manufacturers that that might be something that they can offer to their customers. But again, you'd have to be super picky and super specific about where you would choose to make that kind of free service available because I don't think that... It, if you were to be doing that across the board, we'll use Porsche for for example. I don't think that Porsche wants to provide free electric charging to every single one of its customers across the entirety of the United States. Like that for just sure. might not be a good business plan. But as a but as a premium service in certain neighborhoods or in certain states or in certain cities, that might that might be a good sales pitch.
0: Well, I, I think it comes back to the whole business model of it and like where. Yes, uh, I guess real quickly because um, I realized we were coming up on the time, and this yeah we're going these will out be of the, time, Yeah, yeah, these these will be the final questions. But
1: 1st what we're gonna just you, have to do this again. You know that because it's just for, sure, so much for to talk sure. about. We'll do it again. No, we'll pick up somewhere and it's, else, and,
0: and it's always changing. But <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm curious on, on what you think if you can share this. What is the best and what is the worst business model for uh, an EV charging? company, I guess, Mm -hmm. because I I still struggle with the margins and exactly what you're talking about right now. It's like someone has to pay it in the end. And that comes at a different cost, And whether it's costing the money or the service uh,
1: quality. Yeah, I I think right now it's pretty hard to answer that question. And unfortunately, I feel as if I need to put on the, the lawyer hat a little bit and to use something that as lawyers we say frequently, which is the answer to that question, it depends. It depends right. because you can have an ideal business model, an ideal legal structure in one particular place, but it might not be the same thing across the street. And the example that I'll give you for that is, I'm sure you've been to a Starbucks, and if you've been to any big city, I'm sure you've seen, especially in a place like Manhattan, you may have several of them within a three or four block radius. Each one of those stores is servicing a different customer, different sets of you know, return on their investment. They might even be offering different drinks and different foods. Because in the little market in which they inhabit on that spot on the block, it's all different. And so just because you have, you know, an ideal business or legal structure over here does not mean that that necessarily plays well somewhere else. It's really going to be location dependent. It's really going to be use case dependent. It's really going to be um, power availability dependent. And when you throw all that stuff into the mix, if somebody were to come to me and let's just use the example that we used before of the DCFC fast charging along a mobility corridor, I could certainly come up with ways in which I can say these are the ideal ways in which you would want to do this. But if you were to flip that and you were to go into an urban area and say here's an apartment building, my answer to some of those questions and how you would structure this could be completely different. No, and I, I, I had a feeling that's what
0: you're going to say, but I wanted to ask it. I know it's not the answer. I get asked a lot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know it's not the answer no, you wanted.
1: And I think right. people would love that there's like, oh, yeah. there's a perfect answer. There's a perfect business model. Now, by it, the way, it turns if out, there's... Yeah, go ahead. It turns out
0: these are, these are complicated things, and that's why yes. there isn't a perfect business there's model. No,
1: ne- there's no necessarily one answer. One of the things that I think that I would really like to, uh, like to see, and I feel like that we will start to see this, I think as the industry matures... And as the quality of the infrastructure improves, and as the quality of the vehicles improves, and as the battery technology improves, and as the software improves, and as we start to see more standards and all of that stuff starts to get better, I think what we will start to see, you will start to see a situation where the business models will start to be a little bit more consistent. That will happen over time. That definitely happened in the telecom industry. Just to give you one little taste of that, from... Agreements from 20, 25 years ago, you would sometimes see where maybe they might be paying rent, but let's say they weren't paying rent, but what they were offering was a free line of service and a free cell phone or for up to like three family members or something like that. That's what they did. That is not a business model that would fly in 2024. And in that industry right now, by and large and almost without exception, everybody is paying rent to the people who are putting the property putting putting the infrastructure on their property. That is the way that that, that that industry has shook out. There's very little of the revenue sharing other than the little example that I gave you before. But that's that's what consistently works. There are yeah. still some leasing models, still some licensing models, still some easement models, still some combos of that, but that's generally what you see. Right well, now in the EV industry, it's still too young and too immature where we don't have a consistent model yet, but I feel like we will get there. And the company that figures out what that model is combined with consistently doing, doing their homework and doing their due diligence, those will be the companies that are ultimately going to succeed at this enormously. For sure. And I, I think that's why
0: I, I think there is definitely a model there. But it's also interesting to me, like even the traditional fueling companies, they don't make money on gas. They, if anything, sometimes
1: they
0: make all their money on concessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you're finally seeing some of these larger f- fueling companies kind of get in that space, at least domestically. They've already done that to some extent internationally. Right. But, and there are uh, a lot of
1: startups that are looking at that very model, by the way. Right. And you're
0: right. For sure, and I—I I mean, I feel like I could keep talking with you about this. We haven't even touched like the NEVI funding and all of that no, stuff. No, we haven't even touched um, any of that stuff. But, we can go for hours,
1: <laughs> but we have to be I conscious so of time I, I and is everyone's probably,
0: tolerance. I know. I'll—I'll I'll leave it at one final thing, and then we will—we will, we will sure. have to cut this off, unfortunately. One kind of general question I ask is uh, of most people is just like any recommendations they do have for government or for the public. Uh, sector to do better on these things but i think i'll Mm -hmm. tie it into the nevi thing where we're seeing a lot of these nevi funding and other just kind of general state government funding being tied with certain uh now uptime things and it kind of goes back to some of those terms you were talking about and the experience Mm -hmm. that was created that they have those is there is there anything that like if you had to choose one thing that you'd like to see in that kind of stuff like it needs to have uptime or it needs to have some sort of thing that mm-hmm. we've obviously seen has burnt us that we need to have in these things moving forward.
1: Yeah, this is a fabulous question. We could probably spend an entire podcast I know, I know. I, just, I had, I had to throw, throw it out to, there,
0: but yeah, I know. I'm not going, uh, to. I'm going to.
1: I'm going to answer it. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, the, quick, I'll tell you the short and quick <laughs> answer as to what I would like to see that would really make a difference. Perfect. I think that if the funding for deployments was tied to utilization, uptime, and consistent maintenance over time using a standard that everybody could understand or a metric that everybody could understand and follow, plus incentives for accountability and you put that together, you'd have a much better situation. And I'll give you an example so that way we can get past past the the, the, the little bit of legal ease there. If <laughs> if you were to hand out money to people not when they put the chargers in, but if they showed over time that the charger was being utilized ninety-eight or ninety-nine percent of the time And when they broke that you consistently fixed it within 24 hours and you only provided that money to the company that put the infrastructure in the ground or to the property owner that was getting the benefit of the incentive or the tax break, not at the beginning, but after they showed consistently that they've been doing this over time, then what would start to happen is that people would actually think a lot more about where they were putting the infrastructure to start with because if they knew that they're not going to get the money unless we show a certain level of utilization uptime and maintenance then they're just not going to put it in the middle of nowhere where it won't be utilized where we won't fix it and where we won't we won't be providing spare parts they just won't do that Right. right and the situation that you have right now is that you have none of that so here's one of the problems is that, if I'm not mistaken, that the new NEVI funding requires 97% uptime, and the companies that are now, let's say, fixing the broken chargers, which, we, again, we could got to have a whole discussion on that, right? Fixing the, the, the broken chargers has to provide five years of maintenance. But let me ask you this. What happens when it's not up 97% of the time? What happens when they don't provide five years' worth of maintenance? They've already gotten the money. right? So are they going to, Right. Therein lies the crux of the problem. So if we tie the incentives and we tie the funding to something like that, people will make much smarter decisions about where they deploy the infrastructure to start with. And secondly is that if you are going to have a requirement like 97% off time and five years' worth of maintenance, you, you have to have a metric, and then you also have to have a way to incentivize people to actually follow that. If you have a rule for anything, pick and choose whatever it is that you want. But if you break the rule and you never get into any kind of trouble for breaking the rule, are you going to break the rule? Yes, you're going to break the rule because nothing happens to you if you don't follow it. So we need to have rules and regulations in place that require people to follow them. And if they don't follow them, they get into trouble for not following them. And not only that, but we also have to have rules and funding in place that actually incentivize good behavior versus poor behavior. So if the money is only handed out after you show that it's being used, it's being maintained, and you're fixing it quickly, then you will put it in a place where you know it will be used, where it will be maintained, and where you will have the ability to fix it quickly. As opposed to what we have right now, it's, we still put it right down in the ground, and by the way, we might be putting money back into chargers we never should have put into the ground to begin with. But don't worry, we have 97% uptime and we have to give five years worth of maintenance. So we're all good. We're not.
0: I, I think that's I think that's a great point and probably the best place to end this. Uh, but I, I think you're totally right. There, there needs to be an element of like maybe some of the, or at least some of it up front, some of it over time. Because we're, uh, we've are we talked to other people on the show, too, that we're expecting to see a lot of consolidation in the space. There's all these mm-hmm. people that have gone money, that have had things, and now they're being caught off guard with the long-term uh, kind of actual <laughs> maintenance of this business. So exactly. So I, I, think, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more in this, and I, I think that's a great idea, and I, I hope that is what's, what happens. If I hope listening, so. That has if anybody's listening yes. from the federal
1: government or any of the lobbying yeah. firms out there that you're listening to this – we have a great idea. You just got to do it that way, and then maybe it'll work. <laughs> or the next time that funding comes out, that's how you have to set it up. For sure. But, uh, Jason, we definitely
0: have to have you back soon. Uh, I, thank I just you. want to say thank you so much for coming on today. And with that,
1: uh, we'll let you get going. Thank you. It's really, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Chase. This has been awesome. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for joining us on this insightful journey through the intricacies of electric vehicle charging and the decisions that need to be made when planning them today with our guest, Jason Goldfarb. We hope you've gained valuable perspectives on the ever-evolving energy and electric vehicle charging landscape, along with the crucial role grid connectivity plays in shaping our sustainable future. If you want to learn more and reach out to Jason, please check today's show notes. He's a great resource and always posting new ideas and sharing some of his updates on LinkedIn as well, which you can find in today's show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe to the Great Connections podcast and leave us a review. Your feedback is invaluable and it helps us continue bringing you engaging content and expert analysis. Remember, the power of knowledge is amplified when shared. So take a moment to share this episode with a friend, colleague, or family member who shares your passion for energy and clean transportation. Together, we can spark meaningful conversations and contribute to a more informed and empowered community. Stay connected with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes and additional content. Follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, among others, to be part of our growing community. As we conclude this episode, we express our gratitude to Jason for sharing his expertise and experience with us today. Thank you for tuning in and charging forward with us. Until next week, this is the Grid Connections Podcast signing off.